morning, Mosaic Church. If you would, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6, uh, verses 14 through 27. I uh, just wanted to say it's been a pleasure to be a part of this church. My family's been here for about a year now, uh, and it's just uh, wonderful, wonderful to be a part of this family. Also, I just want to put a quick plug in. Uh, I lead a community circle on Sunday nights. We'll be meeting tonight at 6. If you're interested in digging deeper into the book of Hebrews, oh, five, thank you, yeah, whew. If you're interested in digging deeper uh, into Hebrews, come join us tonight. That's an open invite. You can come talk to me uh, after church. Uh, also, before we dive into this passage, I want to make a quick note. Uh, Adam didn't put me up to this. He, he gave me options of which week and which passage would you like to select. Uh, so this, this week fit conveniently into my schedule, and so uh, Adam is off the hook. So let's, let's begin. The genealogy of Moses and Aaron. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the son of Levi, sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malai, and Mushai, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abiathar. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word would come alive this morning, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, what we receive in our minds would root deep within our hearts for your glory, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as I alluded to earlier, my community circle is currently studying uh, the letter to the Hebrews, a book in the New Testament that draws heavily from the Old Testament, including books like Exodus. In the third and the fourth chapter of Hebrews, the author subtly tips his hat to a profound truth about the Bible. When introducing the 95th Psalm, he states, as the Holy Spirit says, a few, a few verses later, quoting from the very same Psalm, he states, same through David. He credits both the Holy Spirit and David with the authorship of that Psalm. In doing so, he acknowledges what we call the inspiration of Scripture. 
that the Holy Spirit acted organically, not uh, methodically or mechanistically or robotically or trans, uh, how would I put that, or trance-like through the authors of the various books of the Bible, but in a natural way that preserves those authors, their voice, their character, their feeling comes through in those passages. Now, I'm going to make an assumption that for most of you in the room and for a lot of the Christians in kind of the same circles in which we swim, we hold this high view of Scripture. However, I would also suggest that there are some ways that we kind of subtly or implicitly or unknowingly refute that same truth. So I'm going to start this message with kind of three examples. In a way, I'm kind of front-loading the warnings and the applications of this message before we re-engage with the text. Um, Also, as a caveat, I'm not going to go into these in super depth. Each one of those could be a a message unto themselves. Uh, Instead, my my goal is to kind of give us pause to consider how we might take God's word for granted. So the first example is what some have termed red-letter Christianity. By the way of background, in 1899, some of the editions of the Bible begin being printed with the words of Jesus and his quotations from the Old Testament in red letters. In fact, I'm willing to bet some of you right now have either Bible apps or your Bibles open that have Jesus' words in red. I'm not critiquing that specifically, so don't miss this. The genesis for the Red Letter Bible came about from a man named Louis Klopsch. And here's what he argued. In the Red Letter Bible, more clearly than any other edition of the Holy Scriptures, it becomes plain that from beginning to end, the central figure upon which all lines of history, poetry, and prophecy converge is Jesus Christ the savior of the world. He expounded in all the scriptures the things concerning himself and the divine plan for man's redemption. If the intent of the red letter Bible was so noble noble, that Jesus is the central figure of all of scripture, what do I mean when I'm referring to red letter Christians? Sadly, it's it's an ironic twisting of Mr. Klopp's idea that the red words, what Jesus said, can be played like a trump card against the black words, the rest of scripture. Stated another way, we can trust the words in red as God's words, but we should approach the black words with maybe a little bit more suspicion because Jesus didn't expressly say the words in black. Here's what a red-letter Christian or red-letter Christianity might sound like in conversation. So if you hear this, whatever the Christian version of you know, Spider-Man's spidey senses, you know, when danger's at hand, you know, I'm not a big superhero guy, but, you know, he does that thing where he kind of wigs out and then he goes straight to danger. Beware when you hear something that sounds like this. Well, Jesus didn't really talk about fill in the blank with whatever. For example, it's as though if Jesus didn't explore the gospel to the the depth that Paul does in Romans, or if Jesus didn't talk about uh, a current cultural issue, say abortion or the gender confusion that exists today, then we can just say that it it wasn't that important to Jesus. Now, here are two reasons why red-letter Christianity is actually quite dangerous. First, as I've already stated, it sets up this false dichotomy or divide between the red words of Scripture and the black words of Scripture. And it kind of takes this ax to an idea that all of our Bibles, from cover to cover, is God's word. Second, I think many who push this position do so to emphasize the ethical teachings of Jesus, which is right and good, but they also tend to downplay what Jesus accomplished on the cross. What he did on the cross, that's not in red, it's actually in black text. 
which is ironic because Lewis Klopsch chose red for the red letter Bible because it was the color of Christ's blood. Maybe not as pernicious as this first example. A second example of how we might subtly discount the Bible as God's word is through an unhealthy preoccupation with hearing a new word from or placing our trust in someone's claimed experience with God. You might hear someone, for example, say, or you might find yourself saying this from time to time, hmm, you know, the Bible's good, I believe in it, but I, I need something more. It just, it doesn't speak to me. And perhaps sadly, you see this play out in Christian bookstores. You'll find, for example, books there that claim to include Jesus' word, and, and no, one, no end to books that describe a near-death experience and what heaven is actually like. Now, I recognize that some of you might be thinking about books on your shelf at home this very moment. I, I'm not up here to be provocative or use this opportunity to, to spew flame. Uh, this is a practical issue that my wife and, you, my wife and I have even worked through uh, over the last few years. And here are some of the questions we've danced around with some of those books or some of those ideas floating in our mind. How sufficient is scripture? Does it contain all the words that God intended us to have? Does it tell us what we know, must know about God, ourselves, and how we can be saved? I, I like this just very practical quote from a professor, Wayne Grudem, when he speaks to this issue. He says, the sufficiency of scripture is of great significance for our Christian lives. For it enables us to focus our search for God's words to us on the Bible alone and saves us from the endless task of searching through all of the writings of Christians throughout history or through all the teachings of the church or through the subjective feelings and impressions that come to our mind from day to day in order to find out what God requires of us. Now, hey, that's not to say that Scripture is always easy to understand, that it doesn't take some study. That's why my community circle exists, because we need to better understand what God's word says. Or that we might need a wise and discerning older and more mature Christian to come alongside us and show us how this applies to our lives. But Christian, don't be so quick to look elsewhere. It may actually indicate what you truly believe about scripture. Now that being said, I wanna flip this on its head because this can go completely the other way and this is a little bit of an aside from my notes. You know, you can camp out all day in books with great sound doctrine and ignore your Bibles completely. So there's, there's another side to this coin I want you to be aware of. In fact, uh, I'll just go into this. Uh, you know, I love that Adam preaches about the religious person because that's my bent. And so when every time in a, in a message he starts talking about the religious person, I think I've told this to someone else in my community circle, I feel like the lights in the room dim. I feel like a spotlight comes up from like out of the corner and it's shining right at my seat and Adam kind of makes this slow turn like in the movies, and he looks at me, and his, his gaze never goes away. Now, he doesn't actually do that, but I, I think you get my point. The third example of how, my, how we might discount the Bible as God's word is when we consume it, like I consume the National Football League. What I'm coining not red-letter Christianity, but red-zone Christianity. Now, allow me to explain. I have no allegiance to an NFL team although I'm fully aware that many of you do by the jerseys I see worn on Sunday mornings in the fall and the winter. Not sharing your allegiances, though, allows me to become, or enabled me to become a fan of the Red Zone TV channel. If you're not, my wife's already laughing. 
If you're not familiar with the Red Zone channel, its premise is to jump from NFL game to NFL game in real time when any team is in the red zone. In other words, when any team is within 20 yards of scoring a touchdown. So let's say there were eight games going on at the same time on Sunday afternoon in the National Football League. This channel is marvelous. Commercial free, here's what it does. Okay, let's, see, let's say a team is about to score a touchdown on first down. It goes right to that game. Let's say there's another team in another game playing over here, and they're in third and goal with the ball at the two-yard line. Once this plays over, it goes to this game over here. And then if there's a third game going on, you get my point. All this channel does is bounce from one game to the next game to the next game to the next game. So if there are four teams playing, guess what happens to your, four teams, excuse me, that are in the red zone, guess what happens to your screen? It splits into four boxes. If there are eight teams in the red zone, it's like the holy grail of this channel. The screen goes into the octobox, and it's kind of it's frivolous from there because you have to have like a 120-inch screen for your, to even be able to see each of those games when it splits into eight parts. However, there is a downside to the red zone channel. When you're effectively watching eight games at once, you miss out on a lot. For example, if the red zone flips to the Broncos as they're about to score on the Dallas Cowboys, at the 20-yard line, they're about to throw that game-winning pass. You know what I don't know? I don't know how the Broncos got there in the first place. I missed that third and five play back on the 50-yard line that was very crucial to that drive because I don't have a team. I don't care about sitting, sitting down and watching that entire game. Get me to the highlights. I want to see the action. I just want to see the scores and the big plays. But I don't care about the buildup and I don't care about the context. I'll leave it to you, true fans. I think you know where I'm going with this. I'm guilty of treating passages like this morning, just like the Red Zone channel treats football. I've read through Exodus more than once, and I'm willing to bet that when I've gotten this passage, I've seen that heading, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, and that's what it sounds like in my mind. Acknowledge that there were a bunch of names that I could hardly pronounce, and skipped straight to chapter 7. Give me the highlights. Give me the plagues. Let's get on with the action. I have no time for this. I tried to treat this passage just like a lackluster play in a football game that I didn't even care enough about to watch in its entirety. And I'm willing to bet that I'm not the only person in this room guilty of doing something similar with God's Word. So this morning, it's my hope that we would find relevant a seemingly irrelevant passage from Exodus in some way we would see Paul's words from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 come alive. That all, all is the operative word here, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped, equipped excuse me, for every good work. So let's dive in. If you have your Bibles, it'd be good to just kind of pull it back up and have it at the ready, ready here in a second. I think one of the reasons we're inclined to ignore this passage is that it is, to some degree, intimidating. I think we intuitively know there's significance here, but it's not necessarily evident from a cursory reading. If we're to have any hope of unpacking this text, I think we need to answer two questions. Who is this genealogy or family history about? And why was it important to the people of Moses' day and the people kind of living shortly thereafter? 
So let's answer this question, first question by stepping back to the book of Genesis, kind of to retrace the, the early history of Israel. In Genesis, God gives Abraham, the founding father of the Israelites, so to speak, a son Isaac. Isaac, in turn, has a son Jacob. And Jacob is later renamed Israel. So Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Israel, same person. Jacob has 12 sons. And it's under these 12 sons that the Israelites are grouped. So we refer to them commonly as the 12 tribes of Israel. So with that kind of background in mind, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes, let's return to this passage. Look first at verses, in four, verses 14 and 15. We see that this genealogy actually begins by respecting the birth order of Jacob's 12 sons. Verse 14 focuses on Reuben. Verse 15 focuses on Simeon and their immediate sons as well. Even though Moses and Aaron, kind of who we're cued into in this passage, aren't even, aren't even in the line of Reuben and Simeon. In a way, the author of the genealogy is tipping his hat to the two oldest sons of Jacob because Moses and Aaron are heirs of the third son of Jacob, Levi. Accordingly, verse 16 lists Levi and his three sons, Gershon, Koath, remember that name, and Merari. So from this point forward, this genealogy selectively focuses on the successive generations within the tribe of Levi and specifically kind of geared around Moses and Aaron. Nothing else is said of the nine other sons of Jacob here. All right, sometimes it doesn't pay to be a younger sibling. So if we skip ahead to verse 20, and understand I'm being selective right now, but it's for a purpose, and the genealogy to some degree does this for a purpose. If we skip ahead to verse 20, we see Kohath's son, so Levi, Kohath, his son, Amram, took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. We're officially introduced to Moses and Aaron's parents. By this point in the genealogy, we're now four generations down from Levi. Levi, Kohath, Amram, Moses, and Aaron. Now, if we skip ahead to verse 23, we're then introduced to Aaron's children. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And if we skip down to verse 25, we also see one of, we also see one of Aaron's grandchildren. Aaron, I'm sorry, Eliezer, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she born Phineas. So Phineas being one of Aaron's grandchildren. So with the major players identified, rather excitingly, <laughs> how do we more easily answer the question, or how do we answer the question, excuse me, of how this was even relevant to people of its time? First, this genealogy's purpose primarily is to specify which Moses and which Aaron were called to speak with speak to Pharaoh and lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And we see this in verse, verses 26 and 27. So just look down. Look at the verse. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of, land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. It's kind, of a silly re you know, it's kind of silly to think that the purpose of this genealogy in part is to particularize these two, and it's placed right here in the middle of this narrative. But think about it a little bit. We're at a point where 
God has called Moses, God has called Aaron, and he's called them to a specific mission. And really, on the heels of this genealogy, it's kind of go time. And so really its purpose is to particularize Moses, Aaron, and ground them in the specific history of Israel. Let me, let me use kind of a silly example. It wouldn't be enough for me to say that Brian from my community circle went skiing with his family last weekend. Because I didn't give you a last name. I didn't say Brian Lopez or Brian Fletcher. Well, the answer is, the answer is Brian Fletcher, but I think you get my point. Second, this genealogy is significant because it not only identifies Moses and Aaron, but also Aaron's descendants. Excuse me. Although the header of this passage in your Bible might read the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, it actually focuses a little bit more on Aaron. You don't see Moses' sons or grandchildren called out in this passage, but you do see Aaron's sons and one of Aaron's grandchildren called out. And this is for a very particular reason. God later appoints the task of the priest in that role to Aaron and his descendants. And so this is kind of, this passage's way of kind of preemptively signaling to all of Israel who falls in that priestly line. And you'll see in, a, in, in just a bit why this is important. So now that we've specified which Moses, which Aaron, and shed light on who falls within Aaron's line, we can thoroughly say that this genealogy highlights select individuals in the chapters and books to come in our Bible. In addition to an oddity or two, did you catch that part in verse 20 about Moses and Aaron's father, Amram? Who does he marry? He marries his aunt. This might make us squirm. I hope it does. But let's not shy away from it. All this, although this marriage occurred before such relationships were specifically prohibited later in the books of the law, we shouldn't see this as a model. I would consider this a case in the Bible where something is described rather than it being prescribed. It's telling us what occurred rather than necessarily what's allowed. So to borrow from kind of the languages of Genesis chapter 2, Amram and Jochebed are not suitable examples of what it looks like to adequately leave one's family in pursuit of marriage. But it's there, and we can't ignore, and can't ignore it. It's in our Bibles. Moving on in verse 23, we're, interested, we're, excuse me, we're introduced to Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. Later, in Leviticus 10, they offer a strange, or in your Bibles it might say unauthorized, fire before God in the tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting. They attempt to worship God in a way that he has not called them to. And immediately, they're consumed by fire for being presumptive. In verse 24, we're introduced to Moses and Aaron's son, cousin, excuse me, Korah, tying back into an earlier reason for this genealogy. Korah leads a rebellion in Numbers 16, contending that he and his followers should have the same rights and responsibilities and all the glory and power that comes with being a priest like Aaron and his descendants. And their reward for that rebellion, the ground, open up, ground opens up and swallows them. So uh, it's, it's kind of a, a good warning for us not to lay claim <laughs> to what one has not been called. And you know, on a, positive, a more positive note, though, 
Phineas, Aaron's grandson in verse 25, is perhaps best known for a very violent but zeal and zealous act that turns back God's wrath in Numbers 25. I won't go into detail here, but it certainly makes for compelling reading. Phineas is later acknowledged to be somewhat of a military leader in Joshua, and then he's noted as being the high priest of Israel and judges. So as we read through this, it's selectively focusing on a few particular individuals. It's kind of leaving, leaving breadcrumbs for what is to come. Ultimately, though, while this genealogy tells us much about Moses, Aaron, Aaron, and key people in the time of the Exodus, I believe this passage would have been most significant to the people of Moses' day because it's a reminder of God's promise-keeping character. If you were here in January, James Adair preached from one of his most favorite passages, Genesis 15. And in that passage, God promises to Abram, later Abraham, a man that had no heir, that he, his offspring would become as numerous as the stars. And this genealogy demonstrates that God's indeed carrying out that promise initially. It shows us just a small slice of the Israelites that he has grown. However, as Adam pointed out last week, the people that God has multiplied are also at the breaking point. They're in kind of dire straits. And this genealogy is positioned at that breaking point. But do you know what God also promised Abram in Genesis 15? Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As we'll see in coming weeks, the promise-keeping God who multiplied the Israelites will orchestrate their rescue from Egypt. I don't think, though, at this point, that I've really answered the initial premise of this message. It's my hope that you do have a better appreciation for this passage and its context. But the question still remains, is this genealogy indeed relevant to us? Do we miss anything if we skip over it? I would argue that even though this genealogy seems to disrupt the narrative of Exodus, it's part of a far greater suspense in the Old Testament. Along with other genealogies, the various censuses or counts of the people, the listing of the kings, etc., the boring parts, these genealogies look forward to and long for one who will rescue us from the oppression of our own sin. And that's not anything novel. I didn't come up with that on my own. Adam preached about that a couple weeks ago in relationship to Exodus 5. But to draw an analogy from my time in the woods, each one of these genealogies scattered throughout the Old Testament, it's a bit like a mountain spring or stream. It's beautiful in its own right, but it soon joins up with other similar streams. And these streams eventually may empty into a lake that's held back by a dam. And over the course of the Old Testament, these successive genealogies are like more and more water and more and more pressure building behind that dam. Because in these genealogies, we don't find the one who fulfills the most important promises of Scripture. Who will crush the head of the serpent, as God foretells in Genesis 3? Generations pass. It's more water behind the dam. Through whom will Abraham become the father of a multitude of nations, not just the Israelites, as God promised in Genesis chapter 17? Generations pass. 
more water behind the dam. Who is the prophet that Moses writes about in Deuteronomy 18, of whom God says, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. Generations pass, more water behind the dam. Which king is God referring to when he promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to establish the throne of his kingdom forever? Generations pass, more water behind the dam. Who is the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53 who was crushed for our iniquities and by his stripes we are healed? I think you know what I'm going to say. Generations pass, more water behind the dam. By the time we reach the New Testament, that figurative dam, holding back the longing and expectation of all Israel, has reached the breaking point. No such person has been found among all the generations of those who lived and died in the Old Testament. But in the very first chapter of the New Testament, that dam bursts wide open, and that potential energy that's been sitting there for generations generations, generations, becomes kinetic. In Matthew chapter 1, as well as in Luke chapter 3, the genealogies of the Old Testament, including the one that we read today, come to a fitting conclusion in the genealogies of the Bible that end with Jesus. As we sang, a greater man than Adam, a greater priest than Aaron, a greater prophet than Moses, a greater king than David, the one whom the author of Hebrews calls the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So it's not surprising that the genealogies of the Bible end with Jesus because they're no longer needed. We don't lay claim to Jesus by means of physical descent. We are not his far distant relatives. I don't need to get out a flip chart this morning and somehow we all sit here and try to trace our way back to him. If you have placed your faith, your trust, your hope in him, he is not ashamed to call you a brother and a sister. Each and every one of you, the Christians living in the very first century, his brothers and sisters. You today, living 2,000 years later, his brothers and sisters. And guess what? For those of us who believe, your name is written down in another list that God, thankfully, unlike us, is not inclined to skip over. What Revelation 13.8 calls the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Be thankful, Christian, that your name is recorded there. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word even the small, insignificant, kind of minor corners of it that we're inclined to ignore. There's so much richness and truth to be found there. I pray that, God, you would give us an eager, to, eager desire, Lord, to love even those places. And God, I pray that when we get to them, we would humbly submit that they in some way point us Lord, to the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. God, your word does not return void. I pray that that was clear today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.